the message today is on the Reformation and the uh, authority of, of Scripture. And one of the, the themes of our radio program this year was the Reformation. And so this message today is sort of an abbreviated version of what we did at our fall conference back in September. Um, so if you don't know anything about the Reformation, this will be good. This is you know, kind of an overview of some of the important aspects of it. And uh, it's a very important period. So how many of you know that this year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation? Okay, good. A lot of you know. Good. Now, it began in, in 1517, 500 years ago, when a German Catholic priest named Martin Luther, he posted a document known as the, the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, which is located about 40 miles to the southwest of modern-day Berlin, Germany. Now, the Reformation would last approximately 150 years into the mid-1600s, so 1517 to about the mid-1600s. Now, it would be difficult to overstate how much the Reformation altered not just church history, uh, adding a third branch of Christianity called Protestantism to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, the other two branches of Christianity, but also how much it impacted Western civilization as a whole in Europe in what would become our United States. Now, it's not a stretch to say that we probably would not be gathered here today in an evangelical Christian school in the middle of Nebraska if the Protestant Reformation hadn't taken place. Now these 95 theses of, of Martin Luther, they were a list of grievances that he had against certain teachings and abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, which he was a part of, by the way. This was not only the only church in Europe, but it was the dominating force spiritually, politically, and financially in Europe, for all the way from the kings in the continent all the way down to the peasants. Thus it had a name called the Holy Roman Empire. It dominated every aspect of life. It basically was the state. Now it may seem a little odd to us today, but the main dispute that Luther wrote about in these 95 theses and posted on the church door in protest was the selling of indulgences by the clergy of the Catholic Church. Now, the, the, the church hierarchy had really made up this teaching that one soul goes to a place called purgatory after you die, where further purging, purgatory, purging, you're purifying that the soul needed to take place before it could go to heaven. So what was basically taking place is that Catholic priests were selling these indulgences, it was like a piece of paper, to the living relatives of a dead person so that their dead person's relatives, living person's relatives could get more quickly out of purgatory and go to heaven. So now if you're listening to that and thinking, well, where is the biblical basis for purgatory and the selling of indulgences? You're asking the right question. Because boiling it all down, the main debate of the Reformation was this. Who or what 
is the final authority on all matters of doctrine and life and faith and practice. The Catholic Church asserted that they were the final authority, whether the Pope, church traditions, and the, the, the convening of councils that they would have together, that was the final authority. But Luther and the other reformers who were pushing back against the church asserted that scripture alone was the final authority above any church, any pope, or any man. Now this question of authority is the foundational issue from which all other debates of the Reformation, and really all of history for that matter, can be framed. Who or what is the final authority in life? Who gets to say what is right and what is wrong? Now, as Luther's 95 theses were translated into uh, the various uh, languages around Europe and disseminated with the advent of the printing press at that particular time, uh, many others joined in to protest the Catholic Church and demand reform. Protest, reform, Protestant reformation, so we get the term. On a whole host of other church teaching that the reformers believed was in error, whether it was the mass that the Catholic Church did, the, the little re-sacrifice of Christ, the reformers pushed back against that as being an error, to the compulsory <coughs> celibacy of priests, priests weren't allowed to get married, uh, to the really, really big doctrinal issue, which was justification. Is it by faith alone, or is it by faith uh, in, in uh, God's uh, grace plus man's work? Um, that was a huge issue of the Reformation. You may have noticed that I've used the word alone a couple of times when I talk about scripture alone or faith alone. That word, or its Latin equivalent, sola, uh, is the key word that distinguished what the Reformers taught from the Catholic Church. So they had these five solas. This is key to understanding the Reformation. The first was sola scriptura. This means scripture alone is the final authority over and above any church or man. The second sola is sola gratia, grace alone, or God's sovereign initiative, power, and goodness is what saves a sinner, not man earning salvation through performing religious deeds or the sacraments of the Catholic Church. The third sola is sola fide, faith alone in the person and work of Christ is the means by which one receives salvation. Not faith in Christ's work, plus some of man's works as well. The fourth sola that distinguished the Reformation and what the Reformers taught was solas Christos, means in Christ alone is salvation. No other human mediator or work is necessary. It wasn't necessary for a priest to mediate our faith, our faith between us and God. And the last solo was soli deo gloria. For the glory of God alone does God bestow salvation and sustain the universe. So these five solas really summarize what these reformers were pushing back against in the Roman Catholic Church. They believed these were based on scripture. Now, the, the passage in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, that many of you are probably familiar with, very well-known passage in Scripture, summarizes these five solas. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works like religious deeds, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what is this passage saying? In other words, it's saying that one is saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Good works do not contribute to justification or our, our standing before God, but they are the evidence and purpose of salvation. There's a key distinction there that really defines what was going on in the Reformation. Now this may seem like a, a minor difference, but placing even a little faith in our religious deeds to merit salvation is actually rejecting God's all-sufficient grace. And it's basically saying that, you know, I need to add some of my own works because Christ's work on the cross wasn't quite good enough. Now, one has to realize what a brave and frontal assault this was. Uh, these five solas were on the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church at that particular time. And the church was not going to take uh, this sitting down. But they violently pushed back to retain their doctrines, their traditions, their power, and yes, their authority. Just to give you an example of this, they convened a council of, of Roman Catholics in the town of Trent in a little bit uh, 20 years or so after uh, Luther posted these, these 95 theses. And in this particular council, they said, this is one of the many things that they wrote down, this is our position, they said, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious or the sinner is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to be obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema, <coughs> cursed. In other words, if you don't believe that you contribute to your salvation by doing the sacraments, sacraments of the Catholic Church, you're anathema, you're accursed. And that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church did to Martin Luther uh, years before this council actually took place. He was excommunicated, thrown out of the Roman Catholic Church. He was declared a heretic, and a death warrant was issued that anyone who found him could kill him. That's how seriously they took this. In France, another one of the leading reformers, John Calvin, had to flee, Switzerland, had to, flee to Switzerland to avoid persecution in his home country. In Scotland, another place where the Reformation took hold, George Wishart, uh, he was the mentor to, to a man named John Knox, who would become the leading reformer in Scotland. George Wishart, I've actually been to the location in uh, Edinburgh, in, um, in St. Andrews, Scotland. He was hanged and burned after inquisition by the local Catholic cardinal. Knox spent the rest of his life fleeing a similar fate from the, from the Queen of England at the time, who had a nickname called Bloody Mary, because she had killed so many of these reformers for their protest against the Catholic Church. I'll just mention one more. William Tyndale. He had the audaciousness to translate the Bible into English. 
And you may think, well, why is that audacious? Because the Catholic Church didn't want the common person reading the Bible, believing that only the clergy in the church could interpret it correctly. Now, for Tyndale's good work, for, for which each of us in this room today, we have many Bibles around the school, we are indebted to. Tyndale was strangled with a chain. He was set on fire and blown up by gunpowder. So why is this era of the Reformation, where people literally died for what seems like doctrinal issues, why is this era that occurred half a millennium ago, 500 years ago, why is it so relevant for you and me today? Because the answer is actually pretty simple. Because the issue of authority was, is, and always has been the most important issue in life. Who or what is the final authority? Is it a, is it a church? Is it a, a pastor or a priest? Is it the pope? Is the final authority the president or a prime minister? Is it someone who's really smart, who has multiple PhDs? Is that person the authority in life? Is it scientists? Is it the U.S. Supreme Court? Are they the final authority? Is it just a majority of what people want in a democratic society? Is that the final authority in what is right and what is wrong? Is it you or is it me? Are we up to making our own decisions as to what's right and wrong in life? Who gets to say the final word? Now, mankind has always battled with this issue of who is the final authority from the very beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They listened, they, they kind of rejected what God said in the garden and instead listened to Satan. They rejected God's authority. The nation of Israel, you know, uh, ignored the commandments God gave them and instead followed the idolatrous, idolatrous kings and the false prophets and the godless peoples around them. The Jewish religious leaders in Christ's day, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they actually murdered Jesus, clinging to their own authority, their extra-biblical traditions. And so today in America, if you're kind of wondering why we, how we got to this point in America where killing 60 million unborn babies is considered a, a woman's right to health care, how do you get to that point? Or where our highest court redefines marriage to be, you know, can be not just a man and a woman, can be kind of whatever coupling you want. Two men, two women, that's fine too. Where children today, in many places, are encouraged to choose their own gender, whether they want to be a boy or a girl. Where evolution, that, that man evolved from a, a single-cell organism, despite the impossibility of such an idea, is taught as fact in public schools. The answer to these questions is, it comes down to authority. A significant portion of our population, maybe even a majority, have decided that they are the final authority and not God and his word. Thus saith the Lord, as it says in scripture, that's passe. What I want, what I feel, what I think, what the smart people say, that is what, into, that is, what is into them. That is who is the final authority. Now, the first three verses in Psalm chapter 2 speak to this rebellion against God's authority. Watch this. written thousands of years ago. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters, their bonds from us. They have us bonded and cast away their cords from us. It's this rebellion in the heart of man that rejects God in his word. This has been pandemic in the heart of man from the very beginning. God's right to rule is always being challenged by our tendency to rebel against authority. Now, lest we just talk about the world, evangelical Christians have an authority problem as well. There is far too much disregard for what God says about divorce and remarriage, about pornography, about worldliness, sins of the tongue, and the importance of sound teaching, just to name a few things going on in the evangelical church today. Now, the Apostle Paul anticipated this. And when he wrote to his kind of pastor and training, Timothy, his understudy, he said to him this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He anticipated this loss of authority. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Timothy, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So now watch the transition here to what he talks about authority. He says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in, in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. In other words, Paul's telling Timothy, preach God's word while you can because people are going to reject the authority of God's word. It's in the heart of man. So the questions I want to go over briefly today are, how do we resist this human tendency to reject the authority of God and his word? How can scripture be the final authority in our own lives? Here are four ways. Number one, we must read it. Have you ever noticed how books and movies about people's purported visits to heaven or conversations with God are super popular? But what if we actually had the word of God written down in the book? Oh wait, uh, we actually do. We have the incredible privilege of being able to read exactly what God wants us to know. Unlike the Reformation and the period before the Reformation called the Dark Ages, most everyone today is literate. Back then, literally over 95% of people were not literate before the Reformation. We have not just one Bible amongst our family, we have five Bibles at home. And no one is threatening our lives like they were during the Reformation when we want to read it. Job said, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. He saw, he saw scripture as being more important than actually even eating. Now most of us make sure we, we get three meals a day, right? <coughs> but how many of us actually read the word of God on a daily basis, even for a short time? Now reading it is a start. But studying it to properly interpret it and apply it is the key. 
We all kind of like you sat in that Bible study group where you go around the read a passage of scripture, you go around the circle, and everyone says, Well, what this passage means to me is, and with all respect, it really doesn't matter what a passage means to you or to me. It only matters what God means in the passage. God has one intended interpretation of scripture with many applications. One intended interpretation with one application with many applications. So that is our call to find out what it means to uh, what scripture means then to obey it. I love this passage in Timothy where Paul says again in Timothy, be diligent. This is a call for all of us. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And here's the key phrase. Accurately handling the word of truth. A well-known pastor likes to say, the meaning of scripture is scripture. What does that mean? In other words, the way we interpret one passage of scripture must be consistent with the meaning of other passages of scripture. Because scripture is tortured and twisted far too often to make it mean what we wanted to say or what is the culturally acceptable worldview of our day. But let me be clear, if the whole world were to agree on something that contradicted the clear teaching of Scripture, the whole world would be wrong. Paul said it best in Romans 3, let God be found true in his word, though every man be found a liar. Point two, as to what we are to do with this um, reformation idea of Scripture as the authority. Read it and trust it. Now the unbelieving world tries to ridicule Christians for believing some old book that is, quote, full of contradictions and oppression. You've probably heard that before. But 2 Timothy 3.16, again, Paul writing to Timothy says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now this word inspired means, it means God breathed. He breathed it out. And since it's scripture's inspired, that means it's inerrant. It comes from God, it's without error. It's inerrant, without errors. And since it's inerrant, without errors, that means it's infallible. It cannot fail. So since it's from God, without error, and cannot fail, who or what else can possibly be the authority for each one of us when it comes to all matters of life and faith? Now I'll grant you that the miracles in Scripture can't be observed and tested in a scientific laboratory. Those need to be believed by faith, just like the claims of evolution, that something came from nothing and blew up into everything needs to be believed by, well, an even greater faith. If the Bible can't be trusted, you would think that something, maybe even one thing, in a book written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors containing thousands of records of events, places, and people, that one thing could be proven demonstrably false. Nothing has ever been proven false in Scripture. 
And the accuracy and, and quantity of the manuscripts of Scripture over all the years, and the close proximity of the writing of Scripture to the time that these events took place, further support that the Bible can be trusted as the truth. This is exactly what Jesus prayed to his Father in John 17, 3. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You need to take Jesus' word for it and trust the Bible. Point three, read it, trust it. Number three, you need to obey it. Of course, obeying scripture is the hard part because of this rebellious nature we've been talking about today. We, we naturally want to be our own authority in life and not have God or anyone else be the authority over us. Now in my teens and early 20s, before Christ became my Savior and Lord, I, I vividly remember my inner struggle of knowing God's ways because I grew up in a Christian home, but instead going my own way. I thought obeying God somehow would kind of take all the fun out of life. I thought I was, I thought I was, you know, I was going to miss out on what the world had to offer. Later I realized that the, the fun that I was pursuing in life resulted in broken relationships and regret and, and guilt and a, and a deep inner conflict inside of me because I wasn't living for the purpose for which God created me. That always happens when we use something for the wrong purpose. It's never satisfying in the end. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and this is interesting, and his commandments are not burdensome. So obeying God's word is, is not burdensome, although we can often think that's going to be the case. It's going to hinder my fun, right? It's actually free and peace-inducing. Induced, God designed his laws and his ways for his glory, but also our good as well. So listen to the blessings that King David promises to those who keep God's word in Psalm, 19, or Psalm 19. This is a great passage. The law of the Lord, and all these different things, these first phrases are just another, another, another expression for Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is, is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, Scripture, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, in keeping Scripture, there is great reward. Read it. Trust it. Obey it. And the last point is this, to share it. And remember that passage that I read earlier from Paul to Timothy. He said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove and exhort, and the time will come when they don't want to have false doctrine, their ear tickled, they'll want teachers according to their own desire. Remember that? Well, I purposely left out the last sentence to that passage. And the last sentence is this. But you, Timothy... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, here's the phrase, 
Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You know, true Christianity spreads not by political power, as the Roman Catholic partially did during the time of the Reformation. It doesn't spread through cultural popularity. We can just make Christianity hip. People will really jump on board. It doesn't spread through an integration of church and state, forcing people to believe something they really don't want to believe or follow. It doesn't spread by violence or coercion, like Islam tries to do. If you don't, you're not Islam or you convert out of it, you die. It spreads through word of mouth. Every Christian, and that means you and me, has a ministry, whether it's to family, to friends, people we work with, people on our teams, even to complete strangers. Not to twist anyone's arm or to kind of pester them into the kingdom of God, which is not possible. But to as Peter said, to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You see, when you know the truth, when you know the eternal consequences for rejecting the truth, when you know the blessings and the reward for believers for following the truth, how can we not be alert and take every opportunity to share the good news of Scripture, such as, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Christians, we have good news. Nothing to be ashamed of here. We have the good news that can help people in this life and even more, help them become right with God and inherit eternal life. So if you're here this morning, and then you go to a Christian school, and you've never believed this truth, that God sent his son to earth to live a sinless and perfect life and to offer himself as a sacrifice for your sin on the cross so that God could justly forgive you of your sin and declare you righteousness, righteous because of what Christ did on your behalf. If you've never taken that step of faith, I would encourage you to strongly and deeply consider that. That when you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, God will forgive you and He will grant you eternal life. Let me uh, conclude today by saying that the Reformation and its leaders, just as biblical heroes of the faith that we, we read about, Moses, David, Paul, Peter, biblical heroes, they weren't perfect. So the reformers weren't perfect as well. They shouldn't be treated or thought of as, as they were. But what they taught, uh, what they taught in the churches that were formed by their followers, Lutherans, right, came from Luther. The Reformed Church came from John Calvin. Presbyterian Church came from John Knox. And the hundreds of Protestant denominations on every street corner that we see today they all need to be evaluated against the final authority, which is what? Sola Scriptura. But where the teaching of the Reformers did take hold in Europe, and it was in many places around Europe, people were not only spiritually saved from the darkness that they were in, but the cultures and societies and countries 
enlightened as well. Most of Europe went from this kind of tribal environment to the nation states we now see today as a result of the principles of the Reformation. Back then, priests and nuns couldn't marry, and wives were basically considered property with very, no inheritance rights and so forth. Where sola scriptura took hold, family and marriage changed for the better. Work at that time was viewed as something only the peasants did. But when scripture was, was opened up, it was, work was understood to be for the glory of God. You could do any job to God's glory. The roots of free market economics, what in large part this country is based on, free market economics, not socialism, free market economics, that began during the Reformation with a man named Adam Smith in Scotland. Sola Scriptura also changed the church. All of a sudden came in verse-by-verse -verse teaching of Scripture rather than the priest telling you what he wanted you to know. Common people, regular people, were able to read the Word of God for themselves. There was a return to congregational singing in churches and doctrines based on the Bible rather than on man-devised traditions. But the Reformation, this is important, didn't just stop, start, and end in Europe. Those influenced by the Reformation sailed across a great ocean called the Atlantic, bringing this idea of sola scriptura as their authority. You'll recognize this little quote. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. That's from our Declaration of Independence in the late 1700s, about 100 years after the Reformation ended. Now, where do you think our founders and framers came up with these, these principles? That all men are created equal with God-given unalienable rights and with freedom of religion and divided branches of government to restrain the sinful nature of man. Well, they got it from the reformers, and now you know why the Reformation didn't just impact Western Europe, but it impacted all of Western civilization in almost every way. The Puritans, the pilgrims, and our founders were products of this time called the Reformation. But here's the tragic part. Today, Europe is spiritually dead. Their worldview in Europe has nothing to do with the Reformation at all anymore. It's, it's entirely, almost entirely secular and humanistic. The only growing faith in Europe is what? Islam. Churches are closing, being converted into nightclubs and mosques in Europe. Europe has rejected, sadly, sola scriptura as its authority. In America, in many ways, is dying spiritually, too. Our nation, as we talked about, is choosing the authority of man or the authority of God in his word. And the American evangelical church can't seem to decide what it should be. There's too little preaching as the reformers preached and the full counsel of God, and too many what I call kind of sermonettes or Christianettes. 
like giving baby food to people who need adult food. We hear motivational messages about felt needs and social causes in trying to create this emotionally charged worship experience. That's been substituted for sola scriptura, what scripture prescribes as the, the four fundamentals of the church, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So as I close, the call for you and me, even at your ages, in our own lives, is what we need to, to pray for and work for in our own lives, in our own families, is to get back to this idea of the reformation of Scripture alone as our guiding light and authority in our lives. And lastly, we don't just need this biblical soundness, but we need some of the boldness that these reformers had as well. The reformers were courageous. They died in many cases for this principle of Scripture alone as the highest authority and other critical doctrines. Now, there are lots of theological hills in life that are not worth dying on, but God's Word as the highest and final authority over all matters of life and faith is one where we cannot give an inch. So we can thank these reformers for reclaiming what had been shrouded for centuries. They had the conviction and they had the courage to stand up and speak up, even to the point of laying down their lives in some cases. And so as we close today, may God give each one of us the grace to be able to do the same for Christ and for Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we... We worship you for who you are as the, the sovereign over this universe, the creator, the sustainer, the just judge of mankind. You've given us your word in scripture. You are the authority, and when you've written down your word, inspired your word for us, it by extension is our authority. So I would just pray that the students here today and the uh, faculty and staff as well, me included, would be very clear about what our authority should be in life. That we, that we read your word, that we take it in and properly interpret it, that we trust as well, knowing that it comes from you, it's God-breathed and inerrant and all-sufficient in our lives. We obey your word, give us the grace to be able to obey your word, knowing it's not burdensome. It's for our good. We're rewarded when we obey your word. And then we share and proclaim your word as well to a, a hurting world who needs to hear the life-giving truths of Scripture. And also pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who's struggling with the authority of you, Father, in your word, or just struggling to understand what the gospel is that's presented in your word, I pray that they would come to a point of just understanding their own sinfulness. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of your glory, Father. And that you call us to believe in the gospel, the good news about your son, that he came to mediate the dispute, the conflict we've created with you through our sin. And that through his death and resurrection, it satisfied your wrath and your justice over our sin. You declare us forgiven and right before you based on what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Pray that that would be believed by faith, apart from any of our own perceived human goodness. You work on all of our hearts today. We thank you for this school and the shining light for Christ and Scripture that it is. 
We pray your continued blessing upon this place. This place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.